0: John is the uh, most theological of all of the Gospels. John has uh, an agenda and he picks and chooses from the words and the teachings of Jesus in his life and his ministry uh, with a goal of showing us Jesus in a way that some of the gospel other, other gospel writers don't uh, make a particular point and so... John, from the opening words, even if you remember the opening words of the book of John, he has shown us Jesus, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. This morning we are in John chapter 8, we're finishing the chapter up, verses 48 through 59, where in the course of His conversation, Jesus reveals himself to his hearers and to us this morning. Hear then the word of God, John chapter 8. The Jews answered him and and they said, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? And Jesus answered and he said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. And yet I do not seek my own glory, there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus answered, he said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him, and I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, But Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. Bowing our knee, longing to hear you speak, wanting to know the truth. Father, indeed, I pray that we would be a people in love with the truth, in love with the truth as it is in Jesus, in love with the truth as it is found in your word. Oh, would you speak to us this morning and give us ears to, see, to hear and eyes to see that our lives and our hearts would be shaped by the truth. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Pharisees, as we open the text this morning and picking up where we left off last week, the Pharisees are terribly vexed. Jesus has been telling them the truth, and they don't like it. It's hard truth, granted, it's hard truth. None of us like hearing hard truth. And so they hate Jesus. I mean, earlier, as we talked about last week, Jesus has been telling them that they are not the sons of Abraham the way they think they are. That, in fact, they're not the sons of God the way they think they are. They don't know God the way they think they do. They're not not all that they like to imagine themselves to be, that so much of their religious assumptions are just plain wrong. It's hard truth, but it's true. And so they turn around, though. They don't like it. They don't want to hear it. They turn around and they fire back at Jesus. There's a bit of this, oh, yeah? Well, you're a Samaritan and you must have a demon. Derogatory, racist comments. Right? The Samaritans, most of you know the history between Israel and Samaria and uh, coming back from exile, and Samaria is populated by a group of people that have jewish heritage but it's mixed it was mixed in the exile and on their return and they're not pure blood jews and jews took great pride and uh, religious authority in their jewishness and so they didn't like these folks who were not pure bloods they were not and not only that they were they were considered heretical they were a heretical set of people because they did not buy into the, the Pharisees and the, and the uh, Jews in Israel and their claims, their exclusive claims to the heritage of Abraham in the Bible and their Jewishness. And so they did not give full claim to the, the, the Pharisees' claims, just like Jesus' isn't, which is one of the reasons that they, they uh, accuse him of being a Samaritan. It's a similar kind of a thing where he says your heritage is not all you like to think it is. It's also a little bit guilty by association because Jesus preached to the Samaritans. You know, a lot of the Jews, they so hated, you have to understand, it's like worse than the Hatfields and the McCoys. I don't know if you saw that on the, you know, that it goes back generations, hundreds of years and they hate these people. They literally would go around, they would double the length of their trip to go where they had to go if they needed to go north, to go around Samaria so they didn't have to deal with these people. Jesus is the kind of guy who goes through Samaria and he talks to them, and preaches to them. He's received by them. And he actually, at some point, holds them up in his teaching as a model. They go down in history as the good Samaritan. So he's accused of sympathizing with these people, these non-pure-blooded heretics who live next door. They're anti-Jewish heretical theology. And this is where the whole demonic uh, accusation comes in is that if, 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 if the Bible or if, they, if he doesn't understand their source, God must not be the source of his teaching. And so the accusation is if it's not coming from God, you must have a demon. Your prophetic credibility is in question because you question us. They said the same thing about the source and power of the miracles that he performed. They come at him these derogatory you know as you read this i don't know as you read this and you listen to these accusations as i'm reading this you just you have to think the irony in in their perspective the irony in their statements toward jesus is so thick you can cut it with a knife they say he is a samaritan in other words jesus you're not jewish enough Right You're not Jewish enough. You, you don't have the right the full heritage. You align yourself over here, so you're not, you don't have a full take, a part in the uh, heritage and the inheritance that is ours in Abraham. You don't have a full part in the promises that, that are ours in Abraham. You're a Samaritan and not a Jew. when Jesus would say, "He is the true vine." You ever wonder what Jesus meant when he said that? It means that he is the root and source of true Israel. The vine is Israel that God took and planted in Palestine. And Jesus is the true vine. He is is the root and source of everything that is truly Israel. And the only way to be a true Israelite is to be in Jesus. They say he's not a full child of Abraham as a Samaritan. You're not heir to the promise, and yet every, every Israelite promise is yes in Jesus and in Jesus alone. They say he has a demon. When in fact he is, if you'd say it this way, I don't, the opposite. Right? He's truly God. He is the holy one of Israel. So Jesus does not respond in kind. Right? In Fortnite 49 and 50 as he responds to these accusations, he doesn't respond in kind. He's he's not just coming at them to make fun of him. He's not calling names. He's not attacking them. He's trying to tell them the truth. They're having trouble hearing it. And when he turns around, he doesn't respond in kind. He simply says, "I don't have a demon." Right? I honor God. I seek my Father's glory. I am about the Father's business. I do His will. Right? No human being that ever walked the face of the earth honored God the way Jesus honors His Father, whom He loves with all of His heart and soul and mind and strength, and who honors Him in the holiness and righteousness of His own character, who honors Him. In knowing and loving and doing His will and accomplishing His mission, the purpose for which He was sent, there is no one who honors God in His words and in His work like Jesus does. And so Jesus stands before them as grace and as truth, reflecting the glory of God. And they hate Him. They hate Him. And you can taste it in their words. He stands before them as grace and truth, telling them the truth, reflecting the glory of God, honoring the Father. And what they give Him back is hatred. In John 15, later on, Jesus is going to say, Whoever hates me, hates my Father also. To hate Jesus is to hate the Father. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell him in this text. If you hate me, you don't know the Father, right? Understand this. The world does not want to hear the truth. See, sometimes I think that we're under the delusion that the world wants to hear the truth. It wants the truth. That our universities are you know, great places where people gather and seek truth but the world does not want to hear truth. In fact, there's a very real sense in which the world can't handle the truth. Yes, indeed. They hate the truth, right? The world does the world wants truth with a little t. They want they want a Christ with a little c. They want a God with a little g. You know, a God who will do what they think he ought to do, who will tell them what they want to hear, who will help them, who will comfort them, who will be things to them, they don't want God with a capital G. They don't want truth with a capital T. Because that kind of a God is sovereign, that kind of a God is true in a way that, that it stings us. tells us the truth about ourselves and he tells us the truth about our sin and about the world and about our need for a Savior and we see it every day more and more in America it becomes more and more dangerous to tell the truth the truth as it is in God the truth that it is in the scripture just as Jesus speaks to these guys the hard truth they don't know God the way they think they know God they are not children of God the way they think they are They're lost. In America becomes more and more dangerous to speak the truth about many things. To tell people that when they kill unborn children, it's murder. To speak and say that different sexual practices are not just alternate lifestyles. To say things out of God's word to the culture. To try to tell them the truth about what is true and right and healthy and holy. It's a dangerous business. In verse 43, looking back, Jesus told them just straight out, Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear it. You can't bear to hear it. Still today, they cannot bear The world cannot bear to hear the words of God. Jesus told them that if the world hates you, John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus goes before us. Jesus is the one who has walked this road already and has tasted their hatred for no good reason. And that's why in First Peter, Peter tells us, "If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you." In other words, when you follow in the footsteps of Jesus and you are rejected because you like He, try to speak the truth, to honor Him and to honor and glorify the Father by standing in the word of truth, you will be rejected. More and more. The fact that we're not rejected very much sometimes speaks to the level at which we stand with the truth. The world doesn't want to hear the truth. Just like these guys, they can't bear to hear it. You know, but in this text, there's another great irony. The word that they cannot bear to hear is in fact the very word that would save their souls. Right, the word that they reject and they don't want from Jesus, and they're so angry that He's speaking it to them and telling them, is the very word that would save their souls from death. It's the very word that would deliver them. It's the very word that would bring life. In verse fifty-one, He says, "Truly, truly." When Jesus says that, I mean that in the Greek, it's the "Amen and Amen," "Verily, verily," "Truly, truly," "Truth," "Truth." Right? They accuse him of having a demon and speaking lies and getting it all wrong and being heretical. And Jesus says, brothers, truth, right? truth, hear me in this. If you keep my word, you will never see death. If you keep my word, you will never see death if you keep my word if you receive it if you believe it if you obey it if you abide in it if you if you keep my word he says you will you will live forever there's no more pressing issue for the human race is there as we discuss death there's no more pressing issue the reality of death stands ever before us there's no human being that has ever cheated death Not that they haven't tried. In fact, a lot of the movies, the plots of some of the super, you know, the super villains or guys who are seeking immortality. They're seeking a way to cheat death. They're seeking a way to to gather in the resources to somehow perpetuate their life. They don't want to die. And so I think it's I think it fits into this whole fascination in our current day with werewolves and vampires. Right? It started with zombies and now we've moved you know into the whole thing. Because there was a virus, you know, and they, they link it to some sense of reality. You know, what if there was a virus and it turned you into the living dead, you know, a zombie? But now it's kind of turned around. Now it's what if there's a virus and it turns you into the living dead, a vampire or a werewolf, and you never die. They are the thing about them is they are immortal. They have life. I mean, we are fascinated with this idea of of not Being subject to the power of death. Jesus stands in front of these guys and he claims to be the Lord over death. That he has this power. He's able to deliver from its inexorable, right? its unyielding power of the grave. And he's not talking about natural death either whether people know it or understand it or not, that physical death is really not that fearful. It's spiritual death that we should be worried about. It's what the Bible calls the second death. I think it's what Jesus is talking about here. He talks about it in in many places. The Bible brings out this idea, but he says in Luke, in another place, he says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill your body. That's not... That's not the big thing to be worried about. Don't, don't worry about those who can kill the body, and after that, they can do nothing more to you. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed you, has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, he's the guy you've got to worry about. He's the one that should concern us. This is the death we should be concerned about. And this is the death Jesus is talking about. Hell is the second death. It's the spiritual death. And Jesus is saying that when we face physical death, we'll have nothing to fear because we will, we will live. Right? This is what Jesus was saying to the thief on the cross that was next to him. You know, It was clear Jesus didn't have any illusions about whether he was going to die. He and the thief were both being crucified and in the throes of death. But Jesus tells him, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise, right? Today, you will continue to live. Your body will die, but you will, your soul will not die. You will not see death. You will pass into the presence of God. There will be no break between the death of your body and the persistence of your personality, your consciousness, your soul, who you are in the presence of God. This day, you're going to be with me in paradise. You won't die. You will have eternal life. Jesus tells us that one day there will be a great resurrection. The body and the soul will be reunited, and they'll be reunited in a new heavens and a new earth, and, and in some Glorified way our, our physical per, uh, existence will persist. In verse 31, he told them, if you, are, if you abide in my word, you're my disciple. And now he tells them in 51, If you keep my word, you will never die. Right? You put those together. If you abide in my word, you're my disciple. And if you're truly my disciple, you will never die. Followers of Jesus will live forever. Right? On that day. On that day that stands before every one of us. He says on that day. You will not see death. You will live. That day you will be with me in paradise. And so these guys are throwing the worst insults. They can think of at Jesus right. They are throwing mud and seeing if it will stick. And Jesus turns around and he offers them life. Jesus turns around and invites them to salvation, invites them to be his disciple and to to embrace him. Verses fifty-two and fifty-three. They go on. They say, "Now wait a minute." They, they don't hear the invitation. They don't hear what he's saying. They don't. They don't respond to him. They don't put their faith in him. They don't. They don't hear life being held out to them. They say, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! I think I hear something else." Wait a minute, Jesus! You know they're the critical hearers. They're the ones sometimes who are hearing and for 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 the for the critical analysis, they're not hearing. You know the content of what's being what being delivered to them, and they say, "Wait a minute, Jesus! Wait a minute! Did you? What did you just say? Uh, wait a minute!" Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died. The prophets died. These guys, the greatest prophets and, and the founders of our religion and the patriarchs who walked with God and who, on whom all the promises have come to us and, and all who we stand, all of these guys died. None of them had the power over death. None of them had this, the power that you're claiming here today. Are you greater than Abraham? Abraham? Are you greater than the prophets? In verse 53, they literally ask him, Who do you think you are? Who do you make yourself out to be? I want you to understand that everything that Jesus says after this, I believe, is answering that question. Right? He says a couple of things, and they've asked him the question, Who are you making yourself out to be? And Jesus answers them, and he tells them, right? Right? Verse 55, he says, you know, you guys would be lying. if You guys are lying when you say you know God. I would be lying if I said I didn't know him. I'm the one who knows God. That's who I am. I'm the one who's telling you the truth. That's who I am. God empowers and honors my ministry. Because I know him and I keep his word. And he, and he performs, he works miracles in and through me. And then he says in verse fifty six, Abraham looked to see my day, and he rejo- he saw it, and he rejoiced in it. Right? I'm who am I? I'm the guy that Abraham saw and rejoiced and gloried in. Now, when did Abraham see Jesus? How did he see him? And the answer is by faith, that, that Abraham saw him or heard of him or in some way put his faith in him through the promises, right? One of the promises or the promise is really recorded for us in Acts chapter 3 in the New Testament. They understand what is it the center and the core of this whole thing. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. And what does it look like? He said, he said to Abraham, and this is it, this is the central promise, this is this is the big one. And in your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Right? There is some sense in which through you I, am, I have a, a mission. I am going to touch and to bless in a sense save the world. It's in this promise that Abraham sees Jesus and rejoices Because he sees God gives him a promise about his offspring. And his offspring, through his offspring, God is going to bless the world. And so as as much as Abraham sees that offspring and rejoices, believing God's word that he will do it, he saw Jesus' day, the day when his offspring would be the salvation of the world. And we know that he believes this. But that this is what we can read in Galatians 3, Paul makes this very argument. He says, now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, like we just read. And then he says, it doesn't say to your offsprings. He's not referring to many. He's not talking about the nation of Israel at large. He's not talking about many uh, children of Abraham that through this will happen. He says it's referring to one. To your offspring, who is Christ, who is Jesus Right, That promise was a promise about Jesus. In fact, it was a promise to Jesus that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And as much as Abraham believed that promise and saw that day by faith, he saw Jesus. He is the seed of Abraham, right? And the Pharisees suspect, though, when, when Jesus says this, they suspect they're hearing this and they're not sure what to do with it. And they suspect that he might be saying something more. Like, this is huge. What are you saying? And they suspect that he may have another layer to what he is saying. And so they come back at him again. They press him again in verse 57. And they say, you're not old enough to have seen Abraham. Now, Jesus didn't say that. He said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced by faith. You know, so they twist his words, but they come back at him. You're not old enough for this to be true. Jesus answers them and he confirms their worst suspicions. He makes a statement that rocks them back on their heels and sets their blood to boil. Verse 58, Jesus answers them and he says to them, Truth, truth, amen and amen, verily, verily. You guys, here's the truth, let me lay it out for you. Before Abraham was... I am. It's a fascinating statement. We have we have the church has cherished that sentence for ages. Right? And really what they are wrestling with, just like anybody coming to it would, was that Jesus really makes a grammatical blunder. Because the verbs don't agree. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And he mixes up his verb tenses. If he just wanted to say that he lived and existed before Abraham did, he would say, before Abraham was, I was. And that's how you make verb agreement in a sentence. But Jesus doesn't say that. He takes out any, any, a very specific Greek construction. It's an emphatic, first-person, present, active verb. Before Abraham was, I am. It's an error, or is it? They hear it and they understand. See the Greek. It's two Greek words: ego a me, like e g o, ego. Let go of my ego. Ego a me, e i m i. The standalone ego is I. It's what makes the emphatic I, because the verb is first person already. It already says I am, and it's like I, even I am. It's interesting because that's the name that God gives himself in the Old Testament. Right? He revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses says, who am I supposed to tell the Israelites sent me? And God answers him and, and he names himself. I don't think this is his proper name given, you know, he didn't have parents to name. He, he names himself and he says, you know, here, try this on for size. I am who I am. I'm the God who just is. Right? I exist. He gives us I am is his answer. That's how he reveals himself. Now, it's interesting. The Old Testament was translated into Greek. You know, 200 years before Jesus lived, the Old Testament that was written in Hebrew was translated into Greek. If you remember, before the Romans came the Greeks, and the Greeks under Alexander the Great conquered the entire known world, and they conquered Palestine and into the Far East and North Africa, and so the Greeks ruled, and because their language and their culture became dominant, Greek became the language of the empire, and so trade, commerce, and, and the exchange of ideas was done in Greek. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and actually that translation, they call it the Septuagint, was the Bible that was used by Jesus and the Apostles. At least a great deal. We know that because Jesus and the Apostles quote from it. You can tell whether they're quoting from the Hebrew or from the Septuagint. You can tell. And they quote three or four times more out of the Septuagint, hundreds of times. So, in other words, they're very familiar with this Greek translation of the Old Testament. Why is that important? Because in Exodus three fourteen, the Septuagint God names Himself, "Ego, Ame." I am in the Greek. God names Himself, and He uses the very construction to a Septuagint reading first century drew first century Jew. This is nothing less than a full claim to deity. He says, if you imagine how it would rock them back, I am. They, don't even, they won't even use God's name in, in, in the Old Testament. They replace, they won't even say Yahweh or Jehovah in the Hebrew. They they, it, when they write it, they leave letters out so as not to write it. When they read it, they read, Lord, in its place. They would rather say, Lord. They don't, they don't use the name. They don't say the name. They don't write the name. And Jesus says, I am. You know, it's not blasphemous to claim that you're the Messiah. It might offend them. They may not like it. It may have some problems. But it wasn't a, it wasn't, it wasn't a capital crime, People throughout history claimed to be the Messiah. Jews didn't execute him. They often had died. But But they understood the full implications. And we know that because in 59 they pick up stones, don't they? They picked up stones to throw at him. You know, and this happens again later, and this is just in the next couple of chapters, John chapter 10. In this point in his relationship with the Pharisees, they get it. You know, the Jews answered him, and he says, not for any good work that we're going to stone you, but we're going to stone you because of blasphemy, and the blasphemy is this. You're a man, and you think you're God. They get it. They understand what Jesus is saying. There are no if ands, or buts at this point. It's an accurate charge. It's an accurate charge. You being a man, You think you're God. Now, you're only guilty. It's only a crime, even blasphemy, if it's not true. But of course, it is true. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Paul picks it up in Colossians 2.9 and he says, In him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Standing in front of these guys, right, is the God of Abraham. Who before Abraham was, he is. The God who just is. The existing one. The unchangeable, eternal, self-existing Deity. Time is meaningless. He is eternally present. There's no beginning. There, no, there is no ending for him. He is who he is. You know, I'll never forget when my daughter asked me that question. My daughter was pretty smart. Before she was very old, she figured out that if she asked me a theological question at bedtime, I would talk all night. And she would, she would ask me these questions. She would hold them up. And it was, you know, it was after the story, after the praying, after the whatever, as you're kissing her. Dad, who made God? And I swear to you, verbatim, that's what comes out, you know, seven years old. Who made God? You know, and the answer is, as we come, the answer is, I know it's hard to put your mind around, but no one did. He just is. Always has been. <laughs> always will be. Something always was. You can't get something from nothing. And it's Him. You guys, this is our Savior. <laughs> right? This is Jesus. This is our Savior. This is who He is. Before Abraham ever was, He is. He is. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The love that he comes and he shows in his life and in the salvation that he offers. He loved us before the foundations of the world. Right? The Bible tells us he loved and he chose you before Abraham was. He was the son of God. Loving you, choosing you, planning your salvation. Before Abraham was, before the foundations of the world, before time itself, he was loving you and choosing you. And then he came and he loved you in time. For us and for our salvation, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and he laid down his life to save our souls and to pay the penalty for our sin. And the one who loved us from before time and before Abraham loved us in time with the shedding and the pouring out of his own blood on our behalf and this one who was and who is in time loves you to the end right? this is our savior this is the Jesus who continues to sit at the right hand of the father reigning and interceding for those whom he loved before the foundations of the earth with the power of his eternal and unending life So that on that day, we will be with him in paradise. Right? When we are, if we keep his word, we will never see death. The great I am is unchangeably for you in Christ. Right? I am made a new covenant in his own blood. Just think about that. The I am, the great I am, made a new covenant with you, for you, in his own blood. Right? he took on flesh and blood so he could bleed and die. And make a covenant to save. So that we would never have to taste death. It's no wonder that Paul cries out if you read the end of Romans 8 when he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives this great pantheon of praise celebrating. Who will separate us from the love that is in Christ? It, it arises in the mists of eternity past. Right? It pours out its blood for us on the cross. And it sits at the right hand of the Father. Reigning with the power of an unending life. Who will separate us? If this God is out to save you. Rightly, the psalmist said, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him, who keep his word, who are his disciples. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning, I come this morning, awed by what you have done. Awed. In the person of Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you that you took on flesh to save a people like us for yourself. That before the world was made, you knew us, you loved us, you chose us. And when the world is done, We can abide in your love, pass into your presence, and know you for an eternity. Father, I pray that you would capture our hearts with this truth, that you would give us that we might grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love that you have for us in Christ, that we may dwell there moment by moment, taking our eyes off of earthly things and fixing them on Christ, who is above our hope, our strength, our treasure. In whom our life is hidden. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.